A few years ago, as I stepped, or rather stumbled, into my 40s, I started to reflect on my youth and the decade when I came of age, the 1990s. I often hear people these days struggling to describe the 1990s, often referring to them as a decade that is almost characterless, boring. Well, I disagree. And in fact, I think it's inaccurate. I think the 1990s were one of the most disruptive inflection points in the history of mankind. And if you think that today's era is one of unprecedented technology acceleration, what with AI, machine learning, IoT and 5G, consider that my micro-generation Xennials, sandwiched between Gen X and Millennials, had to switch from cassettes to CDs and DVDs to the internet and streaming, and all in the space of a single decade. This makes us Xennials fairly ambidextrous, technologically, but also psychologically. I'm Charlotte Kahn, I'm an inquisitive Xennial, and I am going to invite global thought leaders and experts to come and join me here in the studio to reflect on the 1990s and their lasting impact on our world. And my first guest is fellow Xennial, writer and academic, James Brooksmith. Welcome to Xennials. Hello, James. Hello, thanks for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have you here as the first guest on this podcast because you are the author of this Bible on the 90s. It's called Accelerate, a history of the 90s. The book very much belongs to the analog era in the sense that it's well-researched, of course, but it's also very digital because it's very relatable, it's very engaging, it's fun. You reference pop culture throughout and you use the first person narrative a lot. This mix of low and high culture, it's very zenial, isn't it? Yeah, I think you're right there. Um, as somebody who grew up in the 1990s, I was 11 when they began, 21 when they ended, they kind of formed me as a human being to a certain extent. Um, I find that my, my approach, my style, my thinking, does span those two kind of pre and post digital worlds. Um, and you're absolutely right that this mixing up of cultures, the high and the low, um, the, the, the sacred and the profane, um, the near and the far is very much a, a defining feature of this hinge generation that comes throughout the 1990s. And I tried to reflect that in the book. So what is the story you were trying to tell with your book about the 90s? There are a number of stories that bubble up out of this complex and rich decade. But one of the things, one of the reasons why I wrote the book um, and what I wanted to convey through it was the sense that I had in the last few years that the 90s had ceased to be part of living memory, had shifted into a historical era. Um, and that made me feel, first of all, very old made me feel like a middle-aged grown-up exennial rather than a, a young person. But it also made me want to reflect on that decade that formed me, that had so many interesting kind of cultural uh, and political events in it, and to kind of revisit it with a different perspective, um, with the perspective of historical distance. 
And the 90s are making a comeback, aren't they? Look at the fashion today, everyone is dressed like we used to in the 1990s. Uh, why the fascination with them? Yeah, I think there's a certain glamour that attaches to the 1990s, especially for young people today. It's seen as a kind of good decade, or at least good in comparison to what came afterwards, um, with a much more anxious, turbulent world that people um, grew up in um, in subsequent generations. Um, so there's a lot that's appealing about it. Um, but I also think it's somewhat ironic that the 1990s are now being recycled as retro culture um, because there was a great deal of retro culture about, about in the 1990s as well. We look back to the 60s with a kind of awe and reverence, um, which if you think about it, was about the same amount of time before us as the 90s is now for the younger generation which again, makes me feel very old. <laughs> Same here, sadly. Um, let's talk about generations. Mm -hmm. I have titled this podcast, Zenials. Yet in your book, you question the concept of Zenial. In fact, you call it dubious. Is it fair from an academic perspective to isolate and dissect such a small demographic cohort? In the case of this kind of micro or sandwich generation, the Xenials, it makes sense in many respects to focus on us as a kind of unit. Um, and that is because of the, the deep and lasting impact of the shift to a digital culture. Um, I think it's one of the most transformative historical shifts of the modern era, equivalent to the invention of printing, for instance, back in the 16th and 17th centuries, which produced enormous seismic shifts in the culture of Europe and the world. Um, so I do think it makes sense in terms of digital culture. Um, and we have a perspective on it that is perhaps lacking to other generations in that we straddle that divide. Um, I grew up in a small town in provincial England. And in order for me to get access to the culture that was exciting, I had to get on a train and I had to go to a big city and I had to wander through the streets and go to a record store or a bookshop and be kind of scared of the physical place and the older, cooler, more serious people there. And so that I think gave culture a kind of aura and importance that perhaps it has lost in this always on globally accessible kind of niche world of the digital. So I think, it makes sense to divide us as exennials. James, it's time now to deep dive into the 90s. The general consensus is that the decade starts a cold and misty day of November 1989 in Germany with the fall of the Berlin Wall. And it's a rather crucial and uplifting moment generally for mankind and history which signals the end of a bipolar world. But sadly, it ends on a rather tragic note with the uh, attacks of September the 11th. So what happened, according to you, that led to that rather abrupt end to the decade? Yeah, so 1989 is one of the great moments in European, indeed in world history. Uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the beginning of the end of Soviet communism, and a peaceful revolution that's driven in large part by popular movements, people who have suffered under um, communist authoritarianism, coming out onto the streets, showing themselves in front of the television cameras and precipitating this 
this change. Um, so it's an enormously powerful and moving moment for world history. Um, and then we get, over the course of the 1990s, all kinds of optimistic, even perhaps utopian hopes for the future. Um, we have Francis Fukuyama talking about the spread of liberal democracy around the world. We have the birth of the internet and this new globally connected society. Um, all kinds of great hopes for the way the world is changing. Um, and yet, as you say, 9-11 ushers in a new world of, of kind of fear and resentment and conflict. Um, so I think that optimism is, uh, comes crashing down with 9-11 and subsequent um, historical events after that. There were many sites throughout the 90s that there were cracks in uh, the belief that the neoliberal international order was going to be the path to enlightenment and happiness, really. Irony, for instance, and self-deprecation was very present throughout the 90s and certainly was very widespread in pop culture. Think of The Simpsons, for instance, or the conceptual art of Damon Hirst. Uh, so in your view, is it somehow a response to, like I've said, this globalization, neoliberal order, and maybe to go even further, an antidote to the intellectual, political, and even religious vacuum of the 1990s? Yeah, so it's quite clear that there's a strain in 90s popular culture across television, music, writing, visual arts, that has a kind of ironic, disaffected attitude, often involved in kind of um, gross out humor. Um, and the kind South of Park. South Park was a great example of that, a kind of cynical um, approach to the culture surrounding people. Um, and I think it stems from a number of different factors, but there's a large sense in this ironic attitude um, about a kind of disaffection with the affluent, fairly stable um, conditions in Western liberal democracies in the 1990s. Um, a sense that there aren't any big kind of um, forward moving political movements, um, and a sense that all culture is part of a, a kind of commodity system. Um, the Simpsons is a super a good example because it's funny. It grows out of the kind of 1960s, 70s college counterculture in the United States. Matt Groening uh, grows up in Washington State, the home of grunge, the kind of hippie counterculture. Um, and the jokes poke fun of American suburban life and consumerism. But of course, it's on Fox, the giant cable channel. So there's a kind of built-in irony there um, that The Simpsons plays with and makes fun of. Um, and I think that's the condition for much of the popular culture at the time. And going back to grunge or rave or even house music, in the book, you spend some time describing the emergence of house music, for instance, in Detroit. Yeah the old industrial basin of, of America that's basically left depleted by globalization. Absolutely. It's a new musical subculture that emerges from the wreckage of North America's industrial uh, base. Um, many of the first pioneering house DJs, their families worked um, in middle management for Detroit auto companies. Um, and what you see in house and techno um, and that 
kind of wave of electronic dance music is a shift from that old industrial model to the digital culture. Okay. Um, but from a kind of DIY youth cultural um, approach. So um, where did many of the first raves take place in Berlin and in Manchester and in London and around Europe? They took place in old warehouses, disused factories. Um, so as we get the shift towards deindustrialization and this new globalized, digitized, neoliberal marketplace, um, rave and techno music, I think, use those new materials for subcultural, youth cultural, hedonistic ends. What about grunge then? Uh, because it really took the 90s by storm. It had it yeah. appeared very, very suddenly. What's yeah. the story of grunge? Yeah, takes? the story of grunge is, and it, it mirrors in certain respects, uh, the story of Detroit techno uh, and house music, which is a kind of black urban subculture. Grunge is the kind of white equivalent in certain respects in that it emerges from a kind of DIY punk ethos, which is very suspicious of mainstream and corporate culture especially corporate um, kind of chart music, corporate rock. Um, and it emerges from these local scenes where people produce um, fanzines and put on concerts on a kind of local level. And it's a very intense kind of um, hedonistic, disaffected musical subculture. But what happens in the 1990s is that it explodes into the mainstream. Um, so the values of the, the kind of punk ethos, do it yourself, um, kind of make your own culture, liberate your own self, emerges into the space of MTV and the broadsheet newspapers and giant kind of rock concerts in stadiums around the world. And the great story of grunge is that when Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Sonic Youth arrive in that space, they kind of regret it. <laughs> and they feel ironically... Um, that it's not them. They feel uneasy with that kind of giant success. They feel like they're setups, really. I think that's the, that's the story. Yeah. I have to ask you, do you remember what you were doing when Kurt Cobain died and when the announcement was made everywhere on the radio, in the uh, West anyway? Of course I do. <laughs> okay, it was so one, of, one of the most important moments of my young life at the time. I was at my girlfriend's house in the countryside. We were watching MTV and making out late at night and it popped up on the MTV news and Kurt Cobain had died and we were dumbstruck. Yeah. I mean, it was really a generational event for a certain subsection of youth culture. Like it was a big deal. I in fact had tickets to see Nirvana uh, play in Manchester only a couple of months after he took his own life. During the 1990s, James, there's a lot of hope we've talked about it initially anyway and we start seeing the emergence of a new type of media savvy modern approachable charming politician like bill clinton or tony blair mm -hmm. here in the uk they embody rupture and there again it ends rather badly in mm -hmm. fact spectacularly badly for both of them um what do you think it says about the 90s, the emergence of such maverick politicians? Yeah, they're very definitive personalities for the 1990s, both Clinton and Blair, they're younger. Um, they were both, I think, in their 40s um, as they came to power. And they both embodied a new kind of casual, youthful political 
mood, political style. Bill Clinton famously on late night TV said that he wore boxer shorts rather than briefs. I mean, the leader of the free world talking about underwear. This is a, a new kind of casual, dressed down, popular culture of, of politics. Um, what they offered in political terms was a kind of synthesis of, on the one hand, the communitarian values and commitments of the post-war welfare state. And on the other hand, the dynamic energies of the free marketplace and that kind of Thatcherite, Reaganite version of free market economics that emerged in the 80s. And they were trying to, this was third way politics, affect a kind of synthesis between those two aspects. And it kind of harmonized with the times, um, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the absence of communism as, a, as an alternative model, even though it was discredited long before 1989, but as this viable or at least existing alternative. Um, so, and, and I think the energy around, certainly from somebody who grew up in the UK, New Labour's election in 97 was real. It was a landslide and it was a big, both political and cultural shift from the kind of, not just conservative policies, but the kind of culture of conservatism um, that defined the early 90s. Uh, but then, of course, over time, the wheels came off, as it does with um, almost all political projects. But the key thing, uh, I think, for Tony Blair was the Iraq War. Um, obviously, part of that kind of post 9-11 new world. Um, and that soured um, his, I think, legacy. For Bill Clinton, obviously, uh, Lewinsky, um, that giant celebrity scandal soap opera that descended upon the White House, um, and the way in which Kenneth Starr and the Republicans uh, went for him. Um, and I think we still live with the toxic legacy of that Republican forever war against Clinton and the Democrats. Another phenomenon of the 1990s is the fact that as the decade unfolds, the world becomes smaller and it's increasingly connected through television, we've talked about it, but also the internet, of course, created in the mid-90s and transport as well, the democratization of cheap travel, for instance, um, and the success of uh, Alex Garland's The Beach, for instance, you know, so many people take a gap year, start exploring mm -hmm. the world, etc. It really feels like Xennials, like us, really benefited from the perks of globalization. I think that's absolutely true. Um, the world opened up in this very practical and concrete way in the 1990s. Um, and I think about my own youth, um, it was the norm to travel to distant countries. As a relatively affluent, Western, educated young person, um, the idea of gap years, the idea of backpacker tourism, um, long haul, cheap air travel really did open the world up for us. Um, and that is partly a result of economics, and it's partly to do with the geopolitical climate at that point. We have NAFTA, um, we have the EU, um, freedom of movement is kind of enshrined as kind of assumed right for us as exennials. Um, and that feeds into other areas of the culture at the time, the internet bringing the very, very far near, both in terms of place, but also culture, the, the ability to search up and access previously incredibly distant niche cultures and identities is something that we've definitely 
benefited from and lived with. And I think it came as a shock to us, or at least it seems shocking, to witness a kind of backlash to that in the present with more nationalistic politics, with Brexit, with Trump, with the kind of delayed shockwaves of globalization that I think we're living through right now. It's time to wrap up, unfortunately, James. To conclude with, I wanted to share the feeling I had when reading the, well, upon reaching the conclusion of the book, I started to feel a certain malaise, really, almost, a sadness, in fact, because as indicated in the title of the book, things really start to accelerate and technology in particular, but not just societal um, change as well. And it's Moore's law that you mentioned several times in the book. But when it comes to technology, we're fairly optimistic, weren't we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the 1990s, I think, was the last era of digital optimism, or at least a sense that digital technology was going to, everyone knew it was going to be big. Um, everyone knew it was going to be a transformative technological infrastructure, which was coming online over the course of the 1990s. And I think we read it wrong in many respects. I mean, I think digital technology is amazing and it's empowered us and enriched our knowledge in so many ways. But much of the discourse back then was about democratization. Uh, and about individual empowerment um, and the idea that cyberspace was this kind of separate domain which would free us from old prejudices, our geographical locations, our kind of the bad parts of our traditions. Um, and I think that was overly optimistic. Certainly the way we see digital culture today is much more to do with polarization, um, to do with siloization, fragmentation. Um, so yeah, it was a moment of optimism. And I think it's telling that if you look at the, the kind of digital boosters from the 1990s, Tim Berners-Lee, for instance, who invented, invented HTML code, uh, or Jared, um, Jaron Lanier, who was one of the big VR um, advocates at the time. Many of them these days are looking back to the 90s and the possibilities that weren't actualized. Um, and I think Tim Berners-Lee in particular is advocating now for what he calls the re-decentralization of the internet. Um, going back to its first principles of individual empowerment and rather than the kind of massification in terms of a handful of small platform giants that we have in the form of Meta and Apple and all the rest of them. Okay, so James, it's time for a Zenial quiz. James, your favorite album of the 90s? My favorite album of the 1990s is Massive Attack's Blue Lines. Good one. Good one. It could have been on my list as well. In fact, it probably is. Favourite film? Favourite film is a very tough one because I'm a professor of film studies, but I think I'm going to go with Trainspotting by Danny Boyle. Yes. Yeah, totally emblematic of the, uh, of the era indeed. Your favourite gadget of the 90s? It's a very difficult one to pick, but I'd say my first ever cell phone, which I think I got in 1998. Okay, same here, yeah. 97 or 98, <laughs> around that time. 
your favourite book? My favourite book of the 90s, it was published in 2000, but I'm going to go with Zadie Smith's White Teeth. Hugely impactful uh, book, which I just absorbed at the time and loved. And finally, describe Zenials. Ironic. <laughs> Thank you so much, James. <laughs> James Brooksmith, author of Accelerate, A History of the 90s. Thank you so much Thank you. for your insights today. Thank you very much.